Hello and welcome to He's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson's new film. And we're joined by my brother. Yes, Stephen Glass, who aside from being Mike's brother, uh, is also a graduate in film studies at Warwick. Uh, he went to the London Film School and is a filmmaker. And he's a huge fan of Paul Thomas Anderson. We had him on to talk about Phantom Thread a little while ago, which was a great conversation. He's also a fan of Heim, the band whose members appear in this film. They're a family band, three sisters. They all appear in this film, including the parents. Alana Heim is uh, the main character. I think you've seen them live, haven't you? I saw them live, yeah, at Alexandra Palace. I made yeah. a t-shirt. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, um, I've seen them live. That's part of the reason that I wanted you on, and also because I kind of thought I'm probably going to not like this film very much. And I was right. Mm-hmm. So luckily we can turn it over to you. <laughs> I thought that might be the case. Okay. Um, yeah. I've seen it twice. I saw it whenever it opened here towards the end of December on... He's put out 70 mil blow-ups of the last couple of films of his. Right. And they look really interesting compared to... I mean, it's it's one of the interesting things. It's one of the things that I can imagine people being cynical about, but I'm in the bag completely, so yes. I'm interested. Um, but I do think that his films can take a little time and some sympathy sometimes to to give them a second and a third go so that they become a lot more cohesive. And I definitely found that was the case second time around with this. Partly it also looked better the second time. The 70 mil blow up was really interesting to look at, but I think it was all soft. Like the projectionist had it out of focus and I didn't want to get up and leave, but I can still enjoy the film. Second time I saw it yesterday was a 35 mil print that's going around, which looked gorgeous. Um, this looked gorgeous. This looked great. The 35 mil print, yeah. Um, because I'm sure I'll never see it like that again for a long time, and I'm sure it will look amazing on digital. Either way, point being, I think it coheres a lot more the second time around, and I think that can be increasingly true of his films. I, I, I can't, just to register an objection, I guess, because you know, I think it, it almost feels like a backhanded compliment to say you've got to see this film twice before you warm up to it. I loved it immediately. I think it's fantastic. And I think it's almost a once-in-a-generation film because it kind of brings forth new archetypes, really, that are like instantly re- likable. So I know, you know, it's meant to be referencing American graffiti and films like that, right? Um, and I think it kind of does its own thing with that. So actually, what I'd be curious is to hear from your brother: What didn't you like? Mm-hmm. Why did this film piss you off? It didn't I piss me off. Actually, that would be the exception, you know. It didn't piss me off. I just. Um... I didn't get on with Inherent Vice and I saw it, mm-hmm. I, I anticipated it having some similarities to that because of the period and the region in which it's set. And and one of the things that I never got about Inherent Vice was the feeling of it being a hangout film. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I tried to watch it again recently and I didn't hate it, but I just, I got about 10 minutes in and thought, I, I turned it off and I didn't feel interested enough to go back and see it again, you know, which is not the case with the Paul Thomas Anderson films that I really like. Um, which, you know, kind of grab me and, and and I stick around with them. I kind of anticipate this having a similar thing, and I think it does. And I I think that part of that hangout thing is probably what Stephen says as well, where it probably coheres more on a second viewing. I can imagine that being true. Um, it's a little bit it's a little bit spotty, maybe. But part of it is 
is you want to love being there with these people. You want to be interested yeah. in these characters. You I want do. to hang out. And I, well, I didn't. I think I wasn't that interested <laughs> in them. The film is so clearly built on a love of the place, the era. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson grew up yes. here and everything. Uh, Licorice Pizza is the name of this record shop, chain of record shops that was you know, in his area when he was a kid in San Fernando Valley. And all the American movies and TV of the time, which I know little bits about, and some of them I know quite a bit about, and and recognise how the film is kind of playing on them, the kind of, the, the way American kind of variety TV looked back then, that mm. kind of thing. But mm. you have to love it as well, I think. And I don't care. I, <laughs> I just I, don't care. Well, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily that you... I think it can... I think it can obviously help, like with anything. If you go in loving it, then it mm. uh, just reflects more of that back at you. But I think the thing is so inviting, and I think one of the things that makes it Hangout, I think there's a certain quality that... Well, I think this crosses over with Hangout films, but I think it's something that is partly his style, is that things are sort of... Things are not... I'm, I'm struggling my way there. He follows characters to where they go rather than building a traditional structure and i think this has the it, it feels like the loosest of his films in a long time or the loosest entirely but that's i think it would be wrong to think that that means that it's lazy or that it's sloppy i think it takes an awful lot of careful work to create something that is such a rich texture i think one of the things that i'm really interested in with paul thomas anderson is that he makes these aren't just period films there's something about them that's historical films and I think part of that, part of the achievement of them is how incredible the production design is and how he looks at these places and how lived in they feel and how real. And I think that means more than just surface. Well, Jose and I were just remarking upon, because um, Jose saw that the budget was $40 million. And he said, yeah. you know, there were a few stars in it, but no one's going to get paid that much because the stars in it have small roles and it's not going to be like that. Mm -hmm. And I said, the money has to have gone on making it look like 1973. You know, and the and yeah. the production design and the work that's gone into that is extraordinary and so convincing mm -hmm. and beautiful. Yeah, it's an unbelievable achievement, even on top of his previous films. And he's, um, I mean, Phantom Thread is something. It's just magnificent the more you look at it, and this is great. And I, I don't know how much more interesting it could become the more you live with it and the more you watch it. But I certainly find with his other films, they just keep opening up and changing and re-revealing. The more you see them and the more you see the next thing he's done and how it makes mm. you reflect on all of his previous films. Mm. He's a really deeply interesting filmmaker in that way. This is very interesting because it feels both very personal. You know, it's clearly his childhood. It's my childhood. I actually, I, I even recognize some of the news reports on the um, the gas shortages, right? Mm. I mean, I think I remember that footage, you know, from when it first screened on television. So it's kind of, you know, it's my period as well. I would have been about 10 uh, uh, then. Um, but I also think it's his most likable film. I think it's his immediately likable, most likable film. Yeah. If you don't like that young boy and that young girl... <laughs> There's something wrong with you, I think, right? Like, you know, yeah. you know I mean, uh, you know, that 15-year-old hustler, chubby, really sure of what he wants, completely in love with her, you know, kind of, you know, so in a way physically fumbling in, but actually mentally very secure in what he's doing. To me, that is a, like a fascinating character, right? And Yeah, she also, I agree. You know, it's like she made me laugh out loud in... And the responses are original, actually. I think I really laughed out loud at three or four moments where I thought it was almost inappropriate, but it's just, you know, the mm, kind of yeah. 
the actor just pushed me there. And I think that is something kind of quite extraordinary. I don't think I've seen characters. I mean, they remind me a little bit of characters from the past, right? So there is a little bit of Barbara Streisand circa, you know, 1969, 71 in, in, in that character, right? So it does remind me a little bit of that. But actually, Barbara Streisand didn't play a character who was having an affair with a 15-year-old and who barely looks much older herself, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so I think these are original characters and they're very warm and likable characters, really. You know, and characters where you just see them and they contain a whole backstory just through little things, right? You get the sense that this is a child actor, that he's been supporting his mom, right? That, like, you know, his mom is entirely dependent on him, that the only reason they have a business is because of how he keeps it together. Yeah, the film doesn't tell you that, right? But just through mm -hmm. kind of a, a few actions and a few lines, you get a sense of that world, right? Mm. And her rebelliousness towards, you know, her father, again, it's just a couple of lines and all a whole world comes into place, yeah? Um, yeah. So I, th I think it's more than a couple of lines with her, to be fair. I think everything you see in her household, certainly early on, it, I think it's quite a rich portrait that's painted of what a kind of, what a, what a depressing life she basically has at home and why she would go to dinner with this kid on a whim, you know, why she would seek to escape. I think it's more than a couple of lines. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's quite richly done. That's funny. I certainly didn't think of it as being depressing. I think that's one of the things that yes. I think, again, is something that's characteristic of his films, but it's so much the case here. I think I, I completely agree with Jose from the lead characters down. They're cast so interestingly, so everybody comes with, even the people that you know the bare minimum of, some of the, a couple of the kids who I remember remembering in the end credit sequence and going, oh, that kid, and I know that kid, and I know his personality in the group, even though you get so little of them. Mm -hmm. I remembered the second time round how much I was, I was thinking a lot of the time about Greg, mm -hmm. his little brother. Mm. who barely says a word. I think he might just have the one line when he says the phone's ringing yes. yeah, yeah. and he's just taking the piss out of his bigger brother. And and the reason why, you know, it becomes a, he becomes quite a big character, even though he's off screen later on, when uh, Gary decides to flood John Peter's house. And it's like mm. he said he was going to kill Gary. Mm. And, you real, and you remember this, I certainly, the second time round, but... Um, more the second time round, thought, God, that's that's such a huge part of Gary and who Gary is. And part of it is just how much you're given in the early stages of the film, which I think uh, I think he's I think he likes all of his characters. I don't think he's somebody ever that actually dislikes any of his characters. I think not to dis uh, not to disagree with you thinking that the home life is depressing, but I think well, depressing maybe wasn't quite the right word. I don't think the film takes sides against her family. You can see why she would find it depressing, I think, yeah. is what's key. I understand why they like living there. Yes, that's that's what I meant. Depressing was maybe not quite the right word. What I meant mm -hmm. was you could see why it's somewhere that she would seek to escape from and why she would yeah. decide to... Because uh, initially, when uh, uh, Gary's trying to pick her up, she's she's laughing it off. You know, well, I mean, she's 10 years old and then, of course, it's a joke. Hmm. But once you see the home life, you can see why actually on a whim, she might go with this, see, see something else. Yeah. But I, actually, I didn't, I, again, you know, not just to be disagreeing, but I really didn't, uh, uh, I didn't get that feeling at all. I read it completely differently. I mean, she is 25 years old. She's got a job. You know, if her home was so unbearable, she could have moved out already. You know, she's not a baby. She's not like 17 or 16 like he is. Yeah. So if she's so uncomfortable there, she could move out. Obviously, that home and her sisters and her mother 
And even her father's, uh, he's a pain in the ass, but he is looking after her. And that must have yeah. a value to her, or she wouldn't remain there. Right. Well, that's, okay. uh, yeah. So, so I don't talking, find it. We're oppressive. talking a matter of degrees. We're saying, you know, she, do, she doesn't have enough impetus to move out, but she has enough impetus to go on a date with a 15 year old kid. Maybe she likes a 15 year old kid. Maybe the 15 year old kid is charismatic and dynamic and after her. You know, in a way that no one else is. Maybe the kid is the attraction, well, not the her running away from. The certainly. I mean, she shouldn't stop going on a date with any old fifteen-year-old kid. But I think that's that's part of it. That's all. Well, all this is to agree ultimately with your point that these things are really richly painted, and that's and in such a concise way for one thing. But I think this all agrees ultimately with your point that these things are interesting, and these are interesting people that we're talking about. We're not picking out whether or not a film was good or bad. It's like these are real people, and you get you get a long time to spend with them, and you get really interesting pieces of their lives to look at. And I also think you get really evocative, uh, almost in a sensual way. Uh, pieces of history. So, you know, when yeah. they go on the plane and they have those rubber earphones, mm -hmm. right, which I remember, and they're talking about how wonderful the food is. Yeah, and the yeah. experience of being, you know, how amazing it is to be on a plane, right? There's something about the film that so vividly evokes that experience of, you know, the magnificence of being on a plane in 1973, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that it's that, it, that it's almost a, a visceral way of evoking that, and the film is full of elements like that, which I just loved. I completely agree. I think that kind of the the well, the only thing that I would add is just that how much fun it is in this case. Like it's such a joyous film. Like you say, mm. that scene on the plane, the way that Gary is, he sits there and he's like, "The food is magnificent." It's something he said mm. over and over and over, and it makes him such a teenager that he picks up on this adult word and like gives it up after three or four days. He forgets about it and finds something else, which is really key of him. Like he gets her on a date and then just sits panting by her. Mm. But I think what I was going to mention was, in that sense, there's a real comparison that has been made, and you know that you could get a whole conversation from about this being his "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood." And yes. having that interest in the textures of history, but I think his his project and his end, what the where you get from that is different, is very different in Paul Thomas Anderson to Quentin Tarantino. Part of it's the way that it gets it hems much closer to actual history rather than enjoying getting far away from it and doing things like killing Hitler. Um, actual history and actual people. I mean, I think these yes. feel like people I would know. Yeah, or people I kind yeah. of recognize, or, you know, kind of people in Tarantino's films are always like on their, you know, sketches on their way to iconicity or something. They never <laughs> feel like real people. It's, it's funny as well that you mentioned it being like his version of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because that occurred to me as well. And partly because on the way into Birmingham, I was listening to the podcast that we did together on Phantom Thread. Mm. And in that, I said it, that Phantom Thread was like his grindhouse. Mm. You know, uh, uh, evocation of a yeah. period. Whereas with Paul Thomas Anderson, the, the the period in the filmmaking was more forties. I felt that he was kind of evoking similar sort of thing. And the, and these two directors, Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson, are like darlings of film Twitter. Mm. You know, like mm -hmm. we, we obsess uh, the latest whatever is going to come out. That's the latest thing is 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 obsessed over. And it's funny to think of like those key differences. That, as you say, like one of them is all surface, and the other is finding something much richer beneath actually finding real people.
which is definitely what he's doing. Well, it's it's much more it's much more closely and intimately related to reality without taking that huge circle that Tarantino takes. I think there are things in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that are so human and so moving, mm-hmm. but it's in an entirely different way to a Paul Thomas Anderson film. It goes through it goes through iconography and through sort of artificiality back towards the real, which I think he is interested in. Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson, it's more like you're going inside history. It's mm. like he might go slightly parallel by not making it John Holmes in Boogie Nights or not making it L. Ron Hubbard, but they walk alongside each other and he just stays in this slightly imaginary space. Mm. And I think what you can get to is something that, I don't know how else to put it, but the inside of history. It's like seeing people in history and revealing something through his interesting ways in. Like in Phantom Thread, you think about, you can imagine reading a line in a history book that says, it's suspected that so-and-so dressmaker had this odd relationship in his marriage where his wife poisoned him a couple of times. And he finds that and it becomes this prism into some really interesting truth about people mm. through a history. Mm. That was that was quite lucid. Uh, I I wanted to to ask you to put this a little bit into the context of, you know, his other work, because... I find this his warmest and most likable film. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's something, I mean, I admire all his films, you know, but if you look at The Master and so on, there's something a bit cool, objective distancing about all of those films, I think including mm-hmm. Inherent Vice. Yeah. Whereas this, to me, seems almost like, uh, you know, immediately like kind of likable and open and loose, you know, uh, and really warm. And at the same time, you know, it's dealing with a specific period, which really must be his place and mm. his childhood, right? Mm. And I just wondered if you had any views on that and how it compares to his other films, maybe. Yeah, I think it's completely the most, it's just, it's open arms for a hug mm. from the beginning. Um, previously, it would probably be, Phantom Thread is very, very funny, but in quite a, like a film from the 40s way, it's mm. not, it's not, warm in the way that this is there will be blood and the master are things like i think because they're led by the characters they are the tone Mm. of them is much more well it's not warm it's Mm. not cold but it's not inviting and generous in the way that this feels um and even boogie nights you don't love it in the same way as this it's much more like it's a fun movie and it's an exciting movie and not that this isn't both but it's um it's spending time with family in a way mm. that the other films aren't. They're these giant, uh, particularly Boogie Nights, which is the most fun, probably. Yeah, but there's also something tawdry and seedy and sad about Boogie Nights, right? Yeah. You know, uh, by again, by its nature, right? And when I think of the things with the master, you know, and you think of that scene with uh, Sister, whatever her name is, masturbating the Philip Hoffman character mm. to just get him off. There's something kind of cool and brutal and controlling and a power fight that's, you know, that's evoked by that moment. That's the opposite of falling in love, right? Like, yeah. yeah, that you get, you know, that kind of feeling that this film evokes. I mean, I do, I do think I see it as something unexpected in Thomas Anderson for me. I'm not sure. I think we've seen that warmth before, but I, I do know what you mean, though, about that this is more... I mean, what you said about it being like a warm hug, I, I kind of get that. Yeah. But on the other hand, I also think that there's a whole dimension to this film that I think is really unlikable, which is the phoniness of the world in which they live. Right? You get these kind of real people who are searching for this connection, which is what they ultimately get at the end. 
But California, I mean, the, it, it's based on a character who's hustling. He's trying to set up businesses, make money here, there, and everywhere, trying to get into acting. And then we see this whole world of child actors and so on. And that's all really, really phony and fake. And constantly just telling people what they want to hear, you know, the whole thing about going for an acting job and saying, yes, I can do everything. I can horse ride, I can do karate, because that's what gets you the job. And then you, that is what if you get the job. I know, I'm not saying it's not true. Mm. And then you get the job, and then you, you know, if you get the job, you have to try and learn to do it later. Um, but it's all, it's all really fake and full of lying. And like, it's, a, a, it's about confidence, I suppose. I mean, that's what the kid is full of, is the confidence to make the next hustle work or whatever. Um, but I find that really, really unlikable. I don't think it's a pleasant place to be. I, I, I find it likable because it's not like Sammy Glick or somebody. It's not somebody hustling some, somebody else and cheating them, right? This is kind of finding a way of making people want this stuff that you're selling, right? And actually a lot of, you know, the conversation between the both of them, make it sexier, whatever. It's, you know, he's not he's not conning these people. You know, he's not selling them some shit that they will get home and then, you know, they will realize that they've been ripped off. No, he's selling this dream. <laughs> yes, this is what you want, right? That is what he's doing. And actually that connects very well with the films and the references to things like Lucy and to things like the William Holden film and Breezy and, you know, all of that, right? Kind of, you know, uh, uh, the references to John Peters. I mean, you know, John Peters himself was like the biggest hustler of all time, right? Like, you know, he went from mm -hmm. being a hairdresser to being the head of, of Sony Pictures, right? Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying it's not true. It's definitely true. That's what La La Land is. Yes. But it's, but it's not likable. Well, it's not... <laughs> unlikable well, I, I mean you know for a lot of people that is a, a very attractive thing and a very American certainly a very American thing which could have moments of unattractiveness right but the master was also a little bit about that element what was the Andrew Carnegie thing about how to make friends and influence people yeah mm -hmm. there's like a mm -hmm. whole kind of you know mentality about that right like you know, it's like the American, what is it, the, the salesman, right? You smile and brush off the thing and go on to try to make the next sale. Right? Yeah, but in The Master, I think there's a critique of that attitude where here it's kind of embraced. It's charming. It's interesting that it, whilst talking about how easygoing this was, it was still interesting that Jose mentioned that it was a kind of interesting, in comparing the older films to this, it was, you mentioned power dynamics and it's, you see that throughout especially previous films like Phantom Thread is a relationship and it's shifting power dynamics. And that's the case with the master. There are three central characters and it shifts between them. And this is still just as much about that. It's this constant seesawing between the two of them yes. in which things like meeting John Peters and finding um, or bumping into different people become tools for basically this power struggle between the two of them. Yes. Um, but I agree. I see what Michael means, but I think it's I think it's very consciously and very deliberately taking a very um, it's got a loving and a generous eye towards history while it still doesn't shy away from showing you or noticing things along the way that are ugly as like from the very beginning, the girl like she gets slapped on the ass by the. Yeah high school photographer and you go that's the end of the scene and that scene was gorgeous yeah. but it's just got that little thing there that for me doesn't make it an unpleasant place to be but it dips into those things and you realize that's just part of the texture of this yes noticing is the right word for that i think but it's also true particularly with the sexism towards alana there's a whole thread of that and thread of sexual 
uh, threat towards her. I mean, the whole thing where she's going on that dinner date with Jack Colden, mm. the Sean Penn character. Yeah. There's an element of threat to it at the start. It's a feeling of... She's um, thrilled, though. Oh, she, yeah, she is. But yeah. there's also that feeling of, this is what gets me the job. I have to sleep with it. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's mm-hmm. a threat of that, at least. And then it becomes that she's just ignored because he sees his old mate and it all just takes off in a completely different direction. But actually, that whole thing, that whole dinner and going on to the, 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 the motorcycle jump thing all wraps up, I think, really nicely, actually, when the two of the kids mm-hmm. come together at the end again. And he basically, you know, she, she kind of winds up somewhere that she's more comfortable and he reaches out to her mm-hmm. you know, by running over to her. For me, what illustrates this you know, uh, best is the scene with the politician. Yeah, who's gay, who's hiding an affair, who's clearly under surveillance and potential blackmail from somebody else, who's negotiating all of these things, who is in fact trying to do something good, and actually who look, who's, who's filmed to look like a real beauty. You know, the blue of his eyes, those eyelashes. You know, and then he's filmed just from overhead to, to make those eyelashes, yeah, evident. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that gets to something in this film because it's a very unusual beauty, right? Like, you know, he's fleshy. Yeah, you could see how filmed a different way. He might even seem an ugly man, right? Yeah, but he's filmed to be beautiful, to highlight those things that make him beautiful. And on the other hand, he's a politician. He's not what it seems. He's trying to sell something so that he can be elected, so that he can do something, mm-hmm. right? So actually, I think that gets to that dichotomy of America that, like, you know, these are like good people trying to do good things, but nonetheless, it requires a sale. It requires, mm. yeah, like kind mm. of a sales pitch, yeah, and a maneuvering of unpleasant realities. And nonetheless, the idea that someone would look on this gay politician with the sympathy that we look on him today in 1973 would be absurd. Mm-hmm. Did you think it rang true when Alana hugs the boyfriend? Yes. Yeah, I, I was, thought so. I was touched by that. Yeah. I mean, that's actually the whole region of the film where it started to pick up for me again, because I did like it at the start. I thought it was kind of charming. And then it just lost me for so long when I thought this is going nowhere. And then this this uh, hidden relationship between the politician and his boyfriend comes into play and is revealed. And all of a sudden, it's 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 rich again. And there's, there's stakes, which I think is something that I feel is lacking for a lot of it. There's stakes in their relationship, and you understand the dynamics very quickly. And although, you know, it's ultimately kind of, their part in the film is wrapped up quite quickly. It only comes in towards the end anyway. But I thought thought that was a really beautifully put together portrait of these two people and, and the tensions that they face personally and professionally. It was a really lovely little just kind of sketch, you mm. know, um, that felt very deeply felt. Impeccably and beautifully well-balanced mm. because I, I completely agree with everything Jose is saying. That character, Joel Wax, is made gorgeous and there's this and these giant close-ups of him Mm, mm. and he's doing things and it's such a careful scene to go through line by line where you sit on her for such a long time and you figure out what's going on as she gets disappointed and you're also hearing these two characters and for not one second do i take completely against somebody at the end of the scene you totally understand and are on side with joel just as much as the guy that he's sending home mm-hmm. to keep himself secret, to keep himself closeted. And it's, um, you, you just, it's, 
uh, I'm not putting it very well. I just think it's brilliant just how well balanced it is and how I come out feeling equally towards everybody. Mm. You could so easily have fallen into the politician being the selfish asshole at the end of that scene. Mm. I think there's an element there as well, which is the creation of narrative tension. Because you've seen the guy spying outside, you think he could be someone from the BFI, he could be someone from the press, right? The BFI. Either, either thing would ruin his career. And there was this moment with the, where I thought the boyfriend might be recording it, right? Because he keeps repeating those lines. Does this mean you don't want to come home with me? Does this mean, uh, yeah, like, it's almost as if you want him to say something. And I thought, this is being recorded, right? Like, yeah. And so, actually, then, then that creates this kind of tension until you realize, no, yeah, it was, that's not what the scene was about. But the combination of that type of questioning with a man waiting outside created this layer of tension, of other type of tensions, I thought. Uh, you know, was... That's not something I felt, so I didn't feel the suspicion about that, but I can see why you would. Mm. When you said BFI, did you mean FBI? FBI, yeah. Yeah, because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and actually, it's interesting that I couldn't quite figure out whether the guy was a journalist trying to expose the politician, uh, whether it was a member of the FBI, mm-hmm. or... I thought it might just be an assassin. Or it might be a mafia person. It could, yeah? And actually, it's so interesting if you look at those three things as interchangeable. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My first thought was someone he knew, a boyfriend, or an oh. ex-boyfriend. But then that was like, yeah, it just... Um, part of that might be, yeah, I don't know. But I agree with you that it's... Well, that could be a threat in itself if it's someone who threatens to expose him because of a previous relationship. That's a possibility. Yeah. And then in the end, it's just that person hanging around that, if anything, reminds you of seems like a combination of taxi driver and that guy that walks around in Nashville holding a guitar case. Ah, yes. Just seems like this strange intersection of the two. I don't want to spoil the end of Nashville, but there's a guy (laughs) who walks around with a guitar case. All right. Does he become important? Well, everybody's important, but in that sort of slow build Robert Altman (laughs) way that... You know, mm. um, I wanted to ask you about something you said right at the start about about the freedom, the looseness of the film. You said something similar as well. I saying because in a Paul Thomas Anderson film, you're saying Stephen that you don't know where the characters are going to go. The, he follows his characters where they go rather than building a path for them. Mm. And it strikes me here that, that that actually their plot is quite rigid, and they really saw where it was going to go. And when it comes to the build up towards the running towards each other at the end, and this ultimate uh, finally a kiss. Um, mm. It felt to me like it, that I'd be building towards that the whole time. It's 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 not quite a meet cute at the start, but um, they meet and then they kind of play off each other for a little while, and then they split up. And I thought, well, that that is pretty classic. Sort of, you split them up in the third act to get them back together right at the end. I, it felt mm. r- rigid is a little unfair, but it, it it didn't feel like I was following the characters where they went. They were fitting into a genre. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um... Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny that it's that there is something that's that kind of simple about it. It does break them up after a fight and then they come back together to get back together and probably have a fight again at some other point in the future if they even know each other. But I see what you mean. I suppose it's partly, what do I mean to say by that? Part of it might be that I would have no idea of predicting what the things they're going to get involved with, which test their relationship. Mm. Um, I would have no idea of knowing where they are. I wouldn't know that at some point in the master, we're going to wander off and ride bikes around the desert. 
and I like these people and I, I know that I'm going to enjoy his character. So I'm curious to see what odd directions we go in. Mm. But I see what you mean. It is, it is completely a romance in that way where it's these two people have to understand that they're completely in love with each other from the very beginning. Yeah. And they fight and they tussle and things are in the way. Um, and yet yeah, they know, agree. and yet they know, you know, she knows that he's completely in love with her. And, you know, from that moment where she follows him to the station, he knows that she cares for him. So then, you know, yeah, from very early on, even they know. It's just it's just a question from, like, knowing in a deeper or, you know, yeah, a more complicated way or be more certain. But actually they know from the very beginning, which is partly why I think the film works so well. Yeah, that kind mm. of, I think, you know, it's just a way of them finding out what they already know and what we know, right? So you're kind of seeing those developments, uh, that deepening is what you see. And I think there are two things here that are very interesting. For me, the importance of seeing it through a kind of a nostalgic gaze, right? Because mm -hmm. I was trying to figure out why do we see the shots as we do, right? Like, I think you mentioned this. It seems like, you know, the, the background is always out of focus or, yeah, there's a kind of a haze. You know, it's shot through windows that reflect the inside and the outside simultaneously, mm -hmm. but that makes any of the images kind of hard to put in focus, right? Yeah, that kind of style of shooting, I, I associate it with a kind of a kind of a nostalgia, yeah, or 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 a partial view, yeah, that only certain things from the on the past come into focus, and that's actually through your feeling for it, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think. To me, that's very important in the way that we look at the film, the period, and so on, and these characters. Because if we didn't look at it through that type of gaze, it could be uh, a really horrible, yeah. I mean, you could look at this film as a kind of a female rape of a young boy right like a, i mean theoretically and in law <laughs> yeah that is what it is right she's 25 he's 15 and they're falling in love right i've read i read some review that described it as grooming behavior which i feel like is just it, it takes away all of the all of the actual interest in what this relationship is of course. Um, just to jump in what like because it it's both of the points that you were making i agree well, you mentioned you were talking about how things how how it constructs that partial look at, at that partial gaze at history, mm. um, and I agree. And just to tie that to your, you mentioned when she runs and picks them up from the station, and that's the moment when sort of the penny drops, and mm. they both go, "Well, we know we really know how we feel about each other in this complicated, in love with each other, but sibling." but age gap, et cetera, et cetera, kind of babysitter way. Because the first thing she does for him is babysit him and chaperone him. I think I found yesterday, seeing it the second time, that shot that I remembered of him getting out of the police station and it hangs on the reflection and they hug was just the most gorgeous moment in the film. Is, that is absolutely when you go, they really, like, they love each other and she will go straight for him when he's in that kind of danger. And it's mm. just, yeah, that absolutely cements the thing. Mm. And there are several shots like that. There's a similar one in the pinball place. You know, I think there's a similar one when they're selling the water beds, right? This thing of like the reflections of the inside and the outside. And there's a different one, but a similar type of shot in the politician's office 
with the guy looking outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where the inside and outside are reflected. And then out of all those partial images, one comes into, yeah, one is highlighted. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very beautiful way of doing things. Uh, and of course, I do think that the whole thing of looking at as grooming is absurd, right? Like, But actually, what I'm trying to say is that if we don't look at it that way, it has to do with the way that it's filmed for us because it would be all too easy in the hands of another director to see it as precisely that. Yeah, she's 25, he's 15. Mm -hmm. It's also, um, Mark said on Facebook, he saw it the other day, and he made a comment that, uh, in his estimation, one of the reasons he found it an acceptable relationship, something that you don't question, is that it's so chaste, which I think is an interesting point. Well, but I don't think it's chaste. I mean, I think it's full of sexual desire and longing. It's true. We don't see them rolling in bed. Mm. Yes, well, I think that's what he meant. He, yeah, well, he's trying to to make it with her from the beginning, right? It's like you know, I, I love that moment where she agrees to do nudity in film. How could you do nudity in film and not will be willing to show me your tits? <laughs> yeah. yeah, though of course the punchline to that is when he wants to touch them and says, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, like in the movies I'd show, but nobody would touch, so you can't touch. <laughs> that was a great scene. Yes, but the thing about the sexual desire is there, kind of completely from the very beginning. Mm. But it's all from him, yeah. I must say, right? So, and that makes a difference. That mm-hmm. it's all directed at him. That she's the one who keeps blocking him and blocking him. Yeah. Right. So I think that's also what makes it acceptable and palatable, right? I mean, but it has to be maneuvered. Yeah. And uh, uh, um, and part of it is through that look, how it's presented to us. Yeah. Uh, um, and whose point of view gets prioritized when? Mm. I think is very significant. I still found I found so because clearly it's an interesting film, and in discussion, I found it interesting. I did while watching it find it indulgent. I think part of it is that feeling of mm-hmm. making a film with your mates, and not only with your mates, but with the sons and daughters of famous people who don't really appear to have earned that role, you know. So um, the main character is Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, and obviously Paul Thomas Anderson knows who he's previously worked with him, a friend and all that kind of thing. Um, the Heim family are a family band. They're all in the film. Paul Thomas Anderson has become friends with them, having made uh, music videos for them. There's a, a Spielberg in there, Steven Spielberg's daughter. It's in some minor role that you wouldn't notice, but she's in there. Two Spielbergs. Is there another one? I don't care. There are two Spielbergs. Yeah, one of them is the is. Well, yeah, I, well, yeah, I, okay, yeah. There's two. Um, um, there, yeah. there is a feeling of yeah playing around with your mates and in in a, in a quite an aimless way that didn't appeal to me at all. Okay, can I interject yeah, yeah. there because you know uh, it's I find it interesting that while we value in other filmmakers, you know, the fact that Agnes Valda could just pick up her camera and film her neighbors you know, and do something brilliant, all of a sudden becomes a problem when it's a Hollywood film. Because, you know, what you're describing is just that. It's like you, you, you look at the people around you. It's not as if anybody in the film was bad. Nobody stood out. You know, you couldn't tell a nepotist mm. casting. The way that actually sometimes you look at those 1950s, you know, uh, epic films, and you think, who did she fuck to get into this film? <laughs> right? Because, you know, she must be some producer's girlfriend because she, you know, she can't say a line to save her life. Mm. I never for a moment felt in this film that there was any instance of that. No, nor did I. But I felt an aimlessness to the entire project that, that, that didn't appeal. And I think part of it is, is what you're saying, what you liked. You like these characters. You want to spend time with them. You like hanging out. And that's like my initial 
response was, I don't care about hanging out with these characters. I needed something else. And for a long time, basically, it was a few jokes here and there, which I really enjoyed. Mm. A complete lack of emotional connection to people, though. And then ultimately, finally, I got this, uh, all of a sudden, this relationship between the politician and his boyfriend, which I found fascinating and rich and beautiful, um, but, you know, short-lived, and they're minor characters in the scheme of the whole thing. Um, so that's so that's where I, 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 was, I spent a lot of the time feeling my patience was really being tested because I don't care about these people, and I'm not that interested in seeing you hang out with your friends. Were you not involved when it got to the John Peter section and it became this really brilliant no oil chase away from this guy who said he's going to kill you and you've ruined his house and he's completely out of his mind. I thought it was really funny. A really funny whole set piece and I I really enjoyed reversing backwards down the hill. That was wonderful. I mean, I thought that's never ever going to work. You would crash immediately but there's there's a magic to the whole thing that of course they're going to survive it, you know. Um, which I really enjoyed. driving is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so no, I enjoyed it and, and you know, I'd say there are lots of jokes and bits and pieces that I really enjoyed throughout. But I, yeah, I, I didn't feel a connection to anyone emotionally. I didn't feel like I wanted anything from anyone. I didn't care about anyone until I got to Benny Safdie and his boyfriend. Mm. I love them both. I thought he was so sweet and endearing. Like, you know, you wanted to hug him, really. You know, because I, I also like the fact that he's both cocky, he's got these terrible teeth and the acne and he's chubby, you know. Yeah, mm. but but he's confident, right? And he's up yeah. for life, you know, and she pl- tries to play the, you know, the mature women, whatever, whatever. Yeah. And constantly blocking him and so on, but, but being drawn to him somehow. And then what I thought was like a kind of a heartbreaking moment where he goes off to make it with Melody or whatever her name is. Yeah. And then she, she goes, she's, you know, she mm. finds herself being jealous. Right. And then when she looks out the window and sees that it's them, doing something that we don't see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But obviously it breaks her heart, right? And that's kind of, so you get a feeling like she really loves mm-hmm. him, right? Like, you know, so it's something more than just like, uh, you know, a, a sibling connection. Yeah, kind of, you know, there's a sexual element yeah. where she's jealous. I thought that was a beautiful moment, actually. Yeah. Romantic, you know. Um, which actually mm-hmm. is a question for you because, uh, you know, kind of, why did you not find this romantic? Because you're usually so... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It wasn't Hollywood enough, maybe. Maybe it's because they ain't got good teeth. I mean, this film really makes the case for why everyone in Hollywood has fake teeth. Really. And perfect skin. In fact, at one point, I was trying to go to sleep, and I took my glasses off. And because I'm short-sighted, the whole film got kind of blurred out. And I thought, wow, these people look beautiful. <laughs> so much better this way. <laughs> because it really, you know, they really look, they look like real people, um, to, to put it uh, diplomatically. Yeah, they do. And it's, and it's a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, think she's, I think she's beautiful, actually, uh, and sexy. Uh, but, but also, she looks like a real person, for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. And so does he. And I think that's part of what's so wonderful and actually... Um, kind of original about the film, yeah? I think it's a film about misfits finding each other, and part of the misfit is the age, and part of it is that they're extreme personalities, each each in their own way. I mean, you know, if they don't end up with each other, they're going to find it difficult to find another partner. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I'm not saying he wouldn't find sexual partners or girlfriends or whatever, but somebody who would put up with him, he'd find that a difficult find. But <laughs> yeah. well, she's perfect for him. 
Yeah. Well, I want to ask you sort of the same thing that you asked me, except in reverse. At the end, when they get together and they kiss and they mm. finally make it happen, were you moved by it? Yes, I was moved and kind of um, relieved. You just find a warm glow and things work out. Yeah. How about you, Stephen? <laughs> I think I'm moved when they're running back towards each other and the film makes the big the film makes the biggest jump it's made at all, which is suddenly to intercut those two moments where they ran towards each other, three moments where they ran towards each other. That's when I'm moved. After mm. that, um I'm just on that tipping out at the end of the film where I think it's yeah. great and I'm so pleased, but I'm most moved when they're running back and they find each other. That cutting was really interesting to me, actually. I did notice that because I had noticed before, there's a lot of running in this film, I thought, <laughs> especially, you know, when the oil crisis happens, they can't drive yeah. and there's running back and forth. I thought there's a lot of running here. Um, and then when the film points out the running and it cuts those three or four moments together, I thought that was a clever and quite beautiful way to express this this, this thread. Um, I did like the moment, an individual moment, where after the, the whole shit show with John Peters, um, Alana is sat on the curb and she sees in the distance all the 15-year-old kids and younger uh, with the petrol cans and they're wanking them off mm -hmm. and like just that. being kids. And you can see this thing in her face of, why am I hanging out with these kids? What am I doing with my life? You know. Yeah, but on the other side of her is John Peters yeah. and he's completely off the reservation <laughs> and you go, that's this woman. That's where she is in life. Mm. It's perfect and it's so funny. And it's absolutely, it's the 15-year-old sucking off petrol cans, siphoning fuel. Not siphoning fuel, are they? They're bringing fuel back from the station. Or it's this complete nutbag. That's yeah. where she's found herself. Yeah. yeah. The truck chase is another one of those interesting Paul Thomas Anderson set pieces, which mm. goes back to things like an oil derrick exploding. Mm. And then in Phantom Thread, the end of the second act chase scene is a bunch of ladies standing around a table sewing a wedding dress before the next morning. Mm. And this is a car chase without any gas. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's it something is. really nice about that. These weird, these sent these central set pieces, but they're such oddities. There's never a car chase. It's yes. um, it's something backwards mm. and kind of goofy. And it really worked in the cinema as well. The audience wasn't big. It was probably eight or nine people. Um, but when they get back and he smashes up the Ferrari and then the yeah. engine cuts out, she can't start the engine again, there were gasps in the audience. Yes. You know, that really worked for mm. people. I think the audience responded to everything. Yeah, I think they did. You know, I wasn't the only one kind of uh, uh, laughing. As no, laughing. no, no. The film got big laughs. Yeah. yeah. So, and it was something... I, again, I know, you know, I'm an old cliche about this, but there was something about seeing it on a big screen that I think is so important for this kind of film. I mean, when The Master came out, I went to the trouble of seeing it in 70 millimeter, you know, in London at the Odeon. I went to see it like three or four times because actually it just made such a difference, you know, to see it. Yeah, it was something about not only the, the shape and the size of the screen, but the intensity of the color. Yeah, that it's something that Anderson pays attention to. Mm. And in this screening, there was something about just being enveloped in the faces of, you know, the main characters. Yeah, that I, I felt, you know, I felt mm. connected to them in a different way. Because, mm. when, you know, when you have this 15-year-old kid and that, that goofy smile and the acne and, like, it's almost like you're in his head mm. in a way, you know, that actually seeing it on my quite large television would not have made possible. And I think it's kind of important, particularly in this film, which theoretically or objectively could be made erroneously into such a problem. Actually being immersed in their heads is one of the things that 
mm. prevents you from seeing it in that way or um, mm. warns you against yeah, kind of seeing it in that way. It would be a limiting of what you're being shown uh, to see it in that way only. What you're talking about with, with regards to the, the focus on the characters' faces, I noticed immediately when they meet and he's immediately trying to pursue her, it's done in these two long texts. There's one cut in the middle. Mm. And it's this long lens that's it's kind of almost swirling around them and the, the, the focus is constantly shifting, but it's all on their faces. It's very, very, very well choreographed. It actually must have been quite difficult to do to kind of keep it all in frame and all that for a long period of time. It works so beautifully, mm. the, kind of the, the, the shifting focus of the conversation between the two of them during these takes. It's really great. I, I, I noticed it right from the start. Like This is all about their faces. But the, to me, the faces... So I want to highlight the faces, mm. but I don't want to limit everything to the faces because actually the faces are just the conduit to feeling. I think what's important is what is the feelings with these kids, yeah. yeah, who they are and what they're feeling, right? And a focus on the faces is to highlight the feeling because you know those those camera moves that you described. I also thought they were absolutely like fantastic. Mm. Yeah, those opening scenes. I thought, oh my God, you know, and they're so so long as well. Mm. And what was so interesting is that you know the. the what's outside the faces is almost out of focus, yeah? yeah. You know, so you do have a, 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 a bit of a sense of period, yeah, but the focus is on this person and their feeling. You know, yeah. and I thought that was kind of, you know... Well, we've beautiful. had the period and the setting established with other shots, and mm. now we get into this conversation, this meeting between the two mm. of them, it's all about their faces. And you're right, it's... it's, it's so much is about Alana's looks as well, her looks and responses to things, which is what I connected to in that thing where she sees the kids wanking off the petrol cans yes. it's there's so much there's so much in her character and so much through her performance that is about the reaction to things whereas with the boy it's much more active he's reacting to things less he's instigating more and she reacts to them to him quite often what i thought was amazing about the film that made me realize how what a lack it is in contemporary american cinema is that for once you have two super intelligent people, <laughs> yes, that are the romantic leads. So they're not only very young, they're super intelligent and super capable. And actually, their own intelligence is sometimes a roadblock or an impediment to their romance, right? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah? It's funny they could be stupider. Well, you know, if they didn't overanalyze so much, yeah, or kind of see two steps ahead of what they think is going to happen, so, yeah, mm. they wouldn't have so much problems. You know, and he says it about her at the beginning. Do you always repeat everything twice? Because actually, she repeats it twice because you see her almost actively thinking about it, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and setting up a trap for him the second time, right? Like, yeah, these are hyper intelligent people. Yeah, and and you know, that's not what you see in Ten Things I Know About Her. She's all that, or blah blah blah. Right? This could be a teen film. Well, part of the difference is that they're not just thinking about. Uh, the romantic comedy side of their lives. It's not a rom-com where all they think about is, oh, I just can't get a man. Yes. It's like, no, <laughs> she's got plenty of things to deal with and she happens to get involved with this kid and their lives are mm. are involved yes. with each other. And it's complicated. And part of that is the fact that he loves her and wants to be with her and she's older than him and doesn't want to be with him. But she's, you know, it's um, it's one of many things that go on in their lives. Yes. And one of those things for her is her political interests that develop later on, which I think is interesting because that also comes right after that bit where the kids are playing around with the petrol cans and being immature, I think, mm. just about then. Um, and that becomes a vector for 
a more intelligent kind of view of the world, a way to interact with the world. Mm. I think that she, you know, she she asks at one point to her sister, why am I hanging out with these 15-year-olds? Do you think it's weird that I'm hanging out with them? And the sister doesn't mind. And she goes, <laughs> yeah. I think it is weird, you know, that I'm doing this. And she has that moment where the, they see the oil crisis on TV. The kid has no clue, but she's like, this is really important and it's going to affect our business because the things are made of vinyl. Mm-hmm. And when she gets into the political world, you see you see completely why she gets connected with that immediately, why she why she wants to be there and how she feels it's something that she could be doing in her life that is missing the way she's spending it at the moment. And that it's something that mm-hmm. the relationship with the boy can't offer her. He's interested in pinball and, and waterbeds mm-hmm. and trying to be an actor. Yeah, that's when they have their fight. Yeah. Right? And and Gary's point crucially is that he says you wouldn't be where you are if it weren't for exactly. me. And that's also true. true. Yeah. And that's what's so brilliant about it's not about whether or not they kiss and get together at the end. It's not a question of that. It's a question of what just them even more understanding what their relationship means to each other. Mm. That's almost why it seems to be this running together after the police station and then running together after this at the end. Mm. It's um I agree. This doesn't seem like something that she'll drop. But it's but it points out just it's one of the things that it points out just how big the age gap is between them. And she does need to get her life together in a way that he doesn't. But he's still building a pinball palace after another business fails. And it's um, <laughs> which did, did it fail? Yeah. Because you could you imagine he made a lot of money actually before, you know, before it collapsed. Yeah, and that it collapsed. Oh, the pinball business. No, I the water the, the previous the waterbed. The waterbed. I think the waterbed thing is something that he made a lot of money on and then it, it disappeared. Yeah. Right, so I don't see it as like something having failed. You moved on to something else. Mm. Something that I would say about that, though, which occurred to me in the film as something I felt was lacking, was detail and context around that. And actually, as you say, you can imagine it did quite well. But what I would say is, you have to imagine, and right. you don't get a very rich, you don't get a very detailed impression of actually how this went. So when when the, the vinyl thing happens and the oil crisis comes in, it's going to affect our business because all these are made from vinyl. Mm. I, I kind of. Uh, it seems kind of banal, but I kind of want an impression of: Do they have stock? Is it that they need more? How are they going to? Sell? What can they sell? What they've got? I felt that as a lack. You know, to me that wasn't a problem. And again, to go back to the thing about the family that we kind of disagreed on at the beginning, you know, the way so you found it very detailed. I I didn't. I thought a couple of things evoke a lot, and you have to imagine that. So, for example. And I could be wrong, right? But, you know, just from a few lines that you piece together in the film, like, you know, I imagine the father of having been like a kind of a European Jew exiled to Israel. Why? You know, A, he's still got an accent. B, he learned all those military, yeah, Israeli military moves, right? And then he's in L.A. So she's not only becoming... Americanized, but having to fight the father on all these grounds, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, that I, I'm just imagining all that from a few lines of dialogue, right? The, I know what you mean. Know. I mean, I didn't and say I, I found, I found it that a richness. Well, yeah, that's it. I didn't say I found it detailed. I said I found it rich. The the, the, the disagreement that I had with you was it felt like more than just a few lines of dialogue. But yeah. I, I think we all, I think we essentially agree mm. on how it's on how that home life is built up. Mm. I think we agree a little bit less on what it means for her. I think it gives her a good reason to want to do something different, which is go on this date, and you feel less of that. But mm. I think we essentially agree on how it's conveyed. Yes. I mean, I was thinking about the father because, you know, if you see, how old is he in the film? 55? It's got to be something like that. Yeah? 50s, 60s, maybe, yeah. Yeah. You know, if he is a European Jew who had to immigrate to Israel after, 
you know, he would have been 25, 30 in 1945. Mm -hmm. And you just, yeah, it just brings up all kinds of interesting things that are on the basis of three lines in which you could be wrong, right? Yeah, but there are yeah. things in the film that suggest this deeper context and also establish a relationship between her and her father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of that he's set in his ways for very particular reasons that she doesn't see. Yeah, mm. you know that I Nixon's America for her, yeah, is is quite different than what it might mean for her father. The idea you're getting at being for the father, it's opportunity and escape from something much worse. And for a young person who's growing up there, we see the we see Vietnam. And... Well, if he's known World War Two and Nazism, not to say concentration camps or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, she's probably just like a spoiled brat yeah. who was like an old maid and is making his life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why is she so yeah. difficult? She's got everything. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I think the film, you know, could be analyzed forever in those ways, actually, because, you know, you. Yeah. I mean, some of these things are very deliberate. Some, I'm sure, are happy coincidences that were brought together in editing. But it does feel like a film that feels very worked through, you know, all those shots at the beginning with the use of focus is not an accident. It's clearly very carefully planned. And on the other hand, kind of very loose in terms of like performance and movement and yeah, mm -hmm. and very alive. I mean, I think those kids are absolutely terrific in kind of making it alive. So, I mean, I think for me, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the best of all possible combinations. And then having this, this romanticism and this warmth that is based on intelligence and real feeling rather than some stupidity mm -hmm. and some not real feeling like some cliche of how things should be rather than the way that things are you also get a sense of of pain and difficulty and you know misunderstandings in a much rawer way in this film than is uh usual in american cinema mm. part of what makes that combination possible so that it can be technically incredibly controlled and precise in some ways but really really free and real when it comes to performances is that he seems to have honed this lighting and camera crew and grip crew over the years into this sort of Stanley Kubrick worked with quite a small crew by the end a small core crew for films that are as impressive and sort of vast as they are he had a very small core crew and I think Paul Thomas Anderson seems to have worked with these people and winnowed a crew down, which means that he can, it can be as direct from him onto getting a camera into a position and doing quite complicated things really smoothly. And you can see that if you go back and watch, I mean, if you go back and watch his films over the years, but particularly Phantom Thread into the music videos and things like Anima, which is this Netflix short he did recently. Oh yeah. You can see that style developing and you can, and obviously he's actually credited on screen as co-DOP of this, which um, is, a, I think, basically a cosmetic difference to Phantom Thread, where he's still co-DOP, um, which is a very rare thing. You only get that with with very few directors, and I think it's a really interesting thing. Was he not the sole DOP on Phantom Thread? I don't think he was. I think they have, a, the way he describes it and the way his team seems to describe it is that it's it's sort of a collaborative thing. I think one of them is... One of them probably has the actual light meter and decides on stops. And one of them probably has final say on other things. But it's it's a collaborative thing. There isn't one DOP deciding what light goes where. It's um, it's sort of a group dynamic. No, but as as far as ref, uh, as far as credits go, um, was he not credited on his own? No, he's co on this. No, it's, no, no, no. There's no, a guy on... called Michael Bauman. 
Yeah, no, I'm in on Phantom Thread. I know he was definitely co-credited on this. I'm just checking Phantom Thread. On Phantom Thread, he's credited. He's he he has a British credit. It's lighting cameraman Mike Bauman, which oh, I think oh, is okay. partly it might be to do with unions here. Um, but I like lighting cameraman because that's an old that's kind of a 40s 50s like it's an old fashioned mm. term. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 cinema, it's, it's like calling someone script girl. IMDb says he's DOP uncredited. What do you what do you call script girl now? Continuity. Something? I think it would be called continuity. You wouldn't have script girl on screen because yeah. it's no, no, well, I it know. might not be a girl. <laughs> I was just curious. I, I think it's, yeah, continuity, it's continuity or continuity control supervisor. Advisor or something like that. All right. Yeah. Um, so you've seen it twice, uh, Stephen. What did you get the second time? I found this similarly with The Master, weirdly enough. I think I saw much more directly how one scene led to another scene led to another scene. So it didn't feel as fragmented. I saw how this interaction between them led to this next decision and then moving to over here and then to over there. It seemed much more logical um, how it moved from scene to scene. Mm. Uh, whereas after the first time, it was such a sort of rush of different things and we'd been all over the place and it felt much more like it dipped into this story and then got distracted and just dipped into this one. Uh, this time it felt much more linear. I want to ask one last thing which occurred to me, uh, which is the guy who's married to the Japanese wives who runs a Japanese restaurant. Um, yeah. The joke in his character is that he doesn't speak Japanese and he thinks that putting on this kind of mock Japanese accent speaking English is somehow mm. communicating with his wife um, and then he doesn't translate what they say because he can't. And the moment that happens for the first time, it's such a shock and it's so silly. I really laughed. Yeah. Um, it started to feel really racist after that because that was the only joke and it didn't develop and they kept on playing it. Now it developed. No, it didn't. Yes, it did. It developed the second time because you realize that's not his wife. You know, it's just a girl that he hires. Yeah. Well, that doesn't make the joke any less racist to me. I, I, I no, thought... it makes it more racist. <laughs> but I think that's the problem. But I think it's very deliberate. Yeah, like these women to him are interchangeable. He's hiring them, probably sleeping with them, right? Yeah, but they're different women. Yeah. It also develops in the at the end of in, during the second scene, he says he doesn't actually translate, um, or he says that he doesn't understand Japanese, which is a minor development, which he didn't say the first. Well, he didn't time. say it the first time, but it was yeah. obvious the first time. Yes, I thought it was a reference to those Ben Hanna restaurants of the seventies. Yeah, you used to get ads kind of like that. I mean, I think there's at least a slight reference to that. And I do think that it is quite racist and that, you know, the racism is deliberate. Well, I've, I've, it, it started off, immediately it was funny and it became unacceptable very quickly. And I think the film overplayed its hand in that joke. Yeah, I'm not sure. I've, I've thought about that quite a bit. Um, yeah, I'm not sure whether it, because it's outrageous the first time and then... So much of, but if you, there's also, there's a lot going on between his quote unquote wife and Gary's mum at that point. I, I, it's a really difficult one. I don't know how many times you can do that tastefully or how much you have to quote unquote excuse it. It's, um, I'm not sure. And obviously I'm going, I'm sympathetic towards the filmmaker. So I'm trying to find a way to yeah. make it acceptable. So it's hard to say. It's such an outrageous thing and it's presented realistically if anything i'm confused by does he think he's speaking japanese is it that is he that <laughs> no. stupid well, to me the thing about the film is that the butt of the joke 
is him and his racism. Yeah. It's not the women. Yeah, This exactly. is just what I was going to say. I don't think he's enough the butt of the joke. Well, for it to really I think sell. he is clearly. Because you get the sense the woman wants to talk about the sashimi and all, yeah, and the food, right? You know, and all that stuff. So he is the butt of the joke. I, I uh, do I do know what you mean. And I think the film wants him to be the butt of the joke, but I don't think it sells it enough. Well, it needs to do. It needs to be more emphatic about that somehow, and it's not. Well, I don't see how you could be more emphatic, really. I sort of. I can agree with you. I can. I agree with you in part, but I also think that you you'd potentially be criticizing the film the other way if it punished him in a way that the film isn't interested in doing. It's not about um, making acceptable these parts of the past, which are part of the texture of living when the film is set. Um, his is so that that particular moment is so egregious because it's um, I don't know if it's egregious. It's so outrageous because it's such an extraordinary thing to hear. But I have no doubt that it's quite historically accurate for what it's worth. Um, I don't know whether or not I agree with that. Whether or not I think I think we would be criticizing the film in the reverse if it made acceptable these parts of the past. But whether or not it opens itself up in a negative way the more you do the joke and the more you allow for us to let's say enjoy the racist joke that's that's a hard one because everybody's going to be different is it worth that risk i'd rather criticize the film for being anti-racist than indulging in a racist joke which i think the film is ultimately it does i think the film is anti-racist i mean this is the thing uh mm -hmm. you know it is making him the butt of a joke of the joke it's also highlighting the very casual racism of the period, right? Because, yeah. you know, he, he doesn't think he's being racist. He's kind of, you know, making his money selling Japanese food, of which, you know, he lived in Japan, you know, and so on. He's, he's kind of giving all of these, you know, reasons why he's such a friend of Japan and completely being unconscious of his own racism, which the film points out. I mean, I don't want to go overboard on the defense. You know, I found it very funny. Yeah. I I, yeah. I think that is being over generous though to say the film is pointing out racism of the period. There are so many ways of doing that, and to do this wild racist joke, and then in my view, and it's an instinctive view, to not feel like it's doing enough to undercut it and show you know, show you that uh, the joke is on him. I, th um, I think I think the film makes it very clear that the joke is on him, and I think it's mm -hmm. one thing. You know, to make uh, 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 you know to get a laugh uh, out of the racist mores of the period, than to condone or support the racist mores of the period, which I don't think the film does. No, I, I agree. The film is absolutely not doing that, and it will be nuts to think that it was, mm. and it will be nuts for it to do that. I just think it's badly judged. To put it that way. I think okay. it. I think it doesn't do it right. It got a laugh out of me. It got a laugh out of me at first. <laughs> I thought it, was it got a laugh out of me. It's yeah. really funny. So, there you go. But it didn't get a laugh out of me the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth times. Oh, it only did it one more time. <laughs> I mean, each individual uh, line. Which is, well, which is something in and of itself. You actually sit and you listen to this and you notice the stench that it creates, even in the room in the film, because it's like Gary's mum knows that this is not really right. And his wife is thinks he's a quote-unquote wife. It never occurred to me that she might not be his wife. It's she's completely disgusted by the whole thing, but she can't say anything or doesn't say anything. And it's partly you just watch how this turd that's been laid gets, sits in the room, as well as in the cinema, where yeah, you, there's a huge hurdle at the beginning, which is the utter outrageousness of him doing this. 
think of how complex that is. Exactly, the right. mother's the mother's own lack of awareness, and you know, and and her implicit racism and sexism. Yes, her highlighting the hostesses and the prettiness of the hostesses, and somehow giving the the yeah. the, the 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 implying that they will be available with the sashimi, right? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, which is, which is then pointed out to her, right? So it's not mm -hmm. just him, yeah, it's also her. And actually, in it being about him and her, it is something about America, where this, you know, this Japanese woman, who in fact, you know, is uh, very explicitly stating her own views, is not, nonetheless has no say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, all right, we should wrap it up. Yeah, have you got anything else on your mind, Stephen? Um, I'm good. All right. <laughs> anyway, lovely to see you and lovely to have you with us. Yeah, this was good fun. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm glad you were here. It's a much richer discussion with you here. You obviously, you like the film a lot. You've seen it a couple of times. So I'm really glad that you were here with us, Stephen. That's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, well, thank you very much, Stephen, uh, for joining us. Uh, we are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>